We are doing a second uh, study as we have launched into Galatians. So would you take your Bible, open to Galatians as we look at a message called Gospel Distortions from Galatians 1, verses 6 through 10. So the book of Galatians, if you're physically able to stand, would you stand for the reading of the Word of God? Galatians 1, verse 6. The Apostle Paul writes, I am amazed, Galatians 1.6, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you, Galatians 1.7, and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I again say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this section, which is a strong warning section in the book of Galatians about not messing, not distorting, not diluting, not adding to or subtracting from the gospel. And this is a sobering text because it tells us that the gospel is of such importance that anyone who would preach a gospel contrary to the true one whether it's Paul and his companions, an angel from heaven. We could think of if Gabriel came down and preached a contrary message. If Paul and his companions did, or any other person, the message must be protected and preached accurately. Let them, Paul says, let them be accursed. The Greek word anathema, a strong warning, Lord. And it tells us how serious you are about your gospel being protected and preached accurately and simply. And the good news, Lord, is that the gospel is good news. It's great news. It's the greatest news of all. Jesus Christ paid our full ransom, paid the price in full at the cross. It is a free gift of grace. And I pray that those of us who may wrestle with that, maybe not fully understand it, Maybe it's been confused or distorted for us. We'd have the clarity that you want to bring us and the hope you want to bring us as a result. So we lay this time at your feet, Father. Pray that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit. You'd be pleased with what we do and that you'd be pleased as how we respond as well. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. The gospel is good news. That's literally what gospel means. It means good news. What is the good news? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, we are told the good news is that Jesus Christ, God the Son, entered into our pain, lived the perfect life that we could never live, died on a cross to bear our punishment, to take the wrath of God, to put God's love on display, died on Passover, buried on the Feast of First Fruits, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, raised on the Feast of First Fruits in fulfillment of prophecy. And anyone who will simply say, whether you're five years old or 85 years old, Jesus saved me, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Salvation is a gift of God. It is not by works. It is not something that we can add to, we can produce, uh, keeping good rules. It's not about our diet. It's not about the way we dress. It's not any of that. It's about a free gift paid in full at the cross that can be yours simply for the asking. Now, what troubles some people about what I just said is they say something like this. Can it be that simple? Can it simply be that whether you're 5 or 85 or somewhere in between, you could simply just ask Jesus to save you, believe on him, trust in him as best you can, and what that means to place your full trust in him for your salvation and him alone, 
and be categorized as a saved person? Can you literally move from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, simply by a confession of faith? And the answer is yes. The answer is that the gospel is such good news that you could be dying in a hospital bed, dying on a cross next to the Messiah. You could, you could have a fatal injury, be in a car accident, and someone could preach the gospel in two minutes and say, there's good news, it's paid in full. Would you turn from your sin, turn from trying to do it your own way, and trust in God the Son's sacrifice for you at the cross and through the resurrection? And the Bible teaches that that is the answer. It's the biggest, greatest news of all, and it is so simple, but yet so profound. I've, been, I've spent the last 30 years studying the depth and the implications of it and turning the diamond of the gospel. But the gospel is so simple, I could preach it to a four or five-year-old and just say, trust in Jesus, and they could do it, and they would be as saved as I am saved. Amen? That's the good news that we proclaim. But the, the trouble in the world, as happened from the time of Paul till the time now, is that people distort this simple gospel. They try to add to it. They try sometimes to detract from it, from the beauty of it and the excitement of it. And that's what today's message is about. This section, I would tell you, is foundational not only to the letter of Galatians, but to the whole New Testament. And Paul opens the section with amazement. If you take a look in verse 6 as we look at gospel distortions, Galatians 1.6, Paul says, I am amazed. If you have an ESV, it says, I am astonished. Uh, NIV says the same. The New King James says, I marvel that you, Galatian believers, represented in four churches that we put before you last week, are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ would you note it, to a different gospel. The word different is heteron in Greek. There's a word in Greek that means something that's uh, uh, similar, uh, a gospel, you could say, of the same kind. This Greek word is the gospel of a different kind. Scholars don't know if that's the technical meaning that people would have seen in the first century, but here you could say that the word different, a different gospel at the end of verse 6, is qualitatively different. What they were preaching was something fundamentally different from what Paul first preached. And we studied some of that when he went into uh, synagogues in Acts 13 and 14 and began to preach the gospel. Now let me remind you, if you weren't with us last week, or just by way of reminder, that the, the instigators here have been categorized, the people preaching the false message, the, the distorted gospel, as Judaizers. Now, you may have heard that, you may not have heard that before, but here's what this group represents. Uh, some people believe that they were believers in Jesus and added Jewish law to the gospel. Others say, how could they be believers preaching a false gospel and threatened with the curse of God? So I leave that to your own study, and I'm not sure if in the end that's the most important thing. But they were preaching a false message and saying something like this. They're saying, oh, Paul told you that you're saved by grace through faith. And they might be talking to a non-Jewish person who's called a Gentile. Oh, that's not the whole story. Yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. They may say they believe that. But here's the additional things that you need to do. And one of the main things that they presented was the idea of circumcision, keeping the food laws, keeping the Sabbath day, and basically becoming Judaized or moving as a non-Jew into Judaism. Now, here's why this is important. When Paul was first preaching, he would go into the synagogues first. There were three categories of people in synagogues, typically. Jews from a, a Jewish mom and dad. There were uh, proselytes. Those were people who converted to Judaism. Non-Jew met the God of Israel, believed in the Torah or the Old Testament, and made a conversion, went through a circumcision, went through perhaps a mikvah, which is ceremonial cleansing, similar to a baptism, began to practice the dietary kosher laws of Israel, began to honor the Sabbath at sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, 
began to go and worship in the synagogue and so forth. They would, for all practical purposes, have become Jewish, but a proselyte, a convert to Judaism. Then the third category of individuals sitting in a synagogue typically was a God-fearer. If you've ever studied the book of Acts, chapter 10, Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion, was a God-fearer. He gave alms to the poor. He prayed. Uh, He helped the Jews build a synagogue. And the gospel was sent to Cornelius. Now, Cornelius, to our knowledge, did not go through a conversion, a circumcision, etc., but he was a God-fearer, and the gospel came to Cornelius. And here's what was essentially happening. The Judaizers were saying to people that came behind Paul after he left town, uh, you need to be circumcised to be saved. You need to keep the food laws to be saved. And Paul will say, if you flip over to Galatians 4, take a look at verse 10 with me. He's warning the Galatians, and he says these words. He says, you observe Galatians 4.10, days and months and seasons and years. Paul says, I fear for you that perhaps... I have labored over you in vain. If you have an NIV of uh, Galatians 4.11, it says, I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. That's a sobering word, isn't it? Paul says, I'm afraid that when I preach the good news of the gospel to you, back to Galatians 1, I wasted my time. Now, the word I am amazed is uh, a word that's used often positively in the New Testament, In the Gospel of John, for example, and other Gospels, people were amazed at Jesus' teaching. Sometimes we could could say, that amazes me. We might be amazed at something that happened that's positive. But here the amazement is a negative. Paul might say something like this in our modern language. He would say something like, you've got to be kidding me. Or, I can't believe it. Or, how could you? One writer says, What could have prepared Paul for this heartbreak? With his own blood, sweat, and tears through arduous travel just to get to this place, it was because of an illness that he first preached to them, probably something with his eyes. Paul had established these precious churches, Acts 13 and 14, only to see them abandon the gospel and thus shipwreck their faith. He is incredulous. He can hardly believe their unbelief. They essentially are moving away from the only hope that they have for forgiveness of sins. What a hard, emotional, personal, and painful thing. Have you ever had it happen to you? Have you ever had someone come to you, maybe a person that you discipled or mentored, grandchild, child, nephew, niece, friend, and they come to you and they look at you in the eye and they say, I no longer believe that Christian stuff. I'm not going to go to church anymore. I just don't believe that anymore. And sometimes when you have a child come to you that way, it's one friend at school who read something on the internet and said that there's some good argument for to debunk belief in God, and now your your child says, I'm an atheist. They probably know next to nothing, but that's how they've categorized themselves. I don't want to go to church anymore. There's been a couple of big stories in the Christian world of a man named Joshua Harris. He wrote a book called I've Kissed Dating Goodbye. He was telling people to only, uh, uh, I think he was making the case for courting, but he was saying dating is unbiblical and irrelevant. And he wrote a book that was very influential, influential in the Christian world, being interviewed on Focus on the Family and all the big family programs. And now Joshua Harris is saying that he is no longer identifying himself as a Christian. But what's interesting is that Joshua Harris is also going through a divorce. And may I submit to you, brothers and sisters, without wanting to sound judgmental and by being fully aware that I could fall on my face tomorrow or tonight, could it be that some people who abandon, in quotes, their Christian faith don't do it because they found some compelling argument that's debunked the Bible? Or some archaeological find that has proven that the Bible can't be true. Oh, quite to the contrary. Every time they find something in archaeology, it proves the Bible. But could it be that there are, there's a piece of this pie of people who defect, abandon the faith, that do it simply based upon moral, or should I say immoral, reasons? In other words, they want to do what they want to do. 
They want to do that something that's contrary to the Bible. They want to go into this other lifestyle or be with this other person. And they know the Bible says, uh-uh, you can't do that. So what they say is, I'm no longer a Christian. I don't believe that stuff anymore. Therefore, I'm not accountable to it. And Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart, there's what? No God. But what, why does he say that? If you keep reading in Psalm 14, he does it based upon moral reasons. He's, he's, he's corrupt in his heart. And I'm not trying to broad brush here, but I would, I would submit to you that many of the stories that we hear are based upon just that. It's not some archaeological or theological reason. It's simply a moral or immoral reason to abandon the faith. Marty Sampson, one of the uh, co-worship leaders of Hillsong for years, is now questioning his Christian faith. I've been blessed by Marty Sampson over the years as he sung songs to God. I played the DVDs in my living room for my boys as, we were, as they were growing in the Christian faith. And Marty Sampson is now saying, well, maybe there's, maybe there's truth in other religions. Maybe Jesus isn't the only way. Now, I don't know what's going on in Marty Sampson's life, but I would submit to you that if we were to have the ability to scour the world and watch the defections that happen on a daily basis, I don't think we would be shocked or surprised to know that people probably walk away from the faith every day. Have you been hearing the statistics of uh, kids that grow up in Christian families, in youth groups, who go off to secular universities and now say they no longer believe? Oh, this is rampant. All the polls are coming in now saying if you send your child to a secular university, be prepared for them to come home without their Christian faith anymore. Well, how could that be, someone might say. And what are the dynamics spiritually that are going on? Were they never saved? Were they saved and lost their salvation? We're not going to go there because that, that would take us all day to try to debate it and we still wouldn't solve it. And I would say that that's almost irrelevant for this particular passage because the warning is there nonetheless. And Paul says, I'm amazed. This idea of being amazed has the idea of shock with a mixed with rebuke is how you could put the, the Greek word. I can't believe that you are deserting so quickly the one who called you by the grace of God. The word deserting there is metatithemi in Greek. It means to transfer to transport, literally, or transpose. Two things, one of which is put in the place of the other. It means to change sides, turn away, fall away, or figuratively pervert. It means to change from, to abandon association or loyalty to. A synonym for this particular Greek word is the word apostasy, which is not an Italian dish, by the way. Apostasy literally means a defection or a desertion. If someone was in the military and deserted their post, they would be a deserter from the armed forces. This is the idea, one who changes their loyalty. They made a profession, they made a commitment, they made a covenant, if you will, and now they desert. And that's what Paul is saying. You guys have defected or potentially the tense here is they're in the process of defecting to another gospel, a different gospel qualitatively. In the last days in 2 Thessalonians, if you turn over a few pages to your right, you'll get to First and 2 Thessalonians. These uh, letters have much of their themes have to do with the last days or the end times. Paul is talking about the day of the Lord to the Thessalonian believers, 2 Thessalonians 2 and he says, this will be a characteristic of the last days. He says, 2 Thessalonians 2.3, Let no one, 2.3, in any way deceive you. For it, the, it is the day of the Lord from the end of verse 2. The day of the Lord will not come unless what happens? The apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness, most scholars believe that's the Antichrist, is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. 
And Paul says, five, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? In the last days, I know a lot of people are talking about last days revivals, and that's certainly my prayer. But if we truly be in the last days, what we are going to see, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, is a mass defection. And I believe if you turn back to Galatians, it's going to happen because the church is going to go through a time of trouble. And can you imagine if the church is going through a time of trouble and a man of lawlessness appears who you got to take his mark to be able to buy or sell, you have life and death decisions, if you will, being made. Many people who sat in churches Sunday after Sunday from 2 Thessalonians 2 will defect. What's that mean? They will abandon their faith. They will say, I no longer believe that. I'm no longer a Christian. Now imagine that's happening today at record numbers. Imagine if we entered into a time where persecution became prevalent in America. Now I'm not making a prediction. I'm just saying, imagine if it happened. We think it's hard to be a Christian now, right? In some of the craziness we see in the world. And Paul says, I'm amazed. I, I can't believe that you guys are making this quick departure from grace. Let me say to you, if you leave grace, where are you going to go? If you leave the free gift of salvation found in Jesus Christ for another gospel, pray tell, brother, sister, where are you going? In John 6, Jesus gave this difficult teaching about uh, his body and his blood, misunderstood by the masses, by many and people said, this is a difficult teaching. Who can listen to it? And John, this is ironic, John 6.66 says that many of his disciples, after that teaching, followed him no more. And Jesus turned to the 12, hand-picked apostles, and said, do you want to defect? Do you also want to go away? And Peter, thank God, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We ain't going anywhere. We've come to know and believe that you are the Messiah of God. Apostasy, defecting, is sad. Some of you are in this room, and you have someone who led you to Christ that's defected from the faith. Someone who became a mentor to you, and they're no longer even going to church or studying the Bible. Some of you may remember that there was a story told in the book by Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ, where he documented the story of Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton was a contemporary of Billy Graham. They were both preaching to huge crowds and seeing big responses to the gospel, preaching to thousands. They say that Templeton was being as effective as Billy Graham. Well, Templeton one day picked up something like a Life magazine. He saw a picture on the cover of a woman in Africa holding a dead baby, and the caption read why, something like this, why does, doesn't God send rain? And he said that catapulted him into agnosticism and bordering on atheism. And he began to write books against the Christian faith and against the Bible. And he became a voice of the opposition. Templeton went this way. Billy Graham went this way. Now, many of you have never heard the name Charles Templeton because Charles Templeton died sadly with his legacy being writing books about the Christian faith, and Billy Graham led probably millions of people to Christ. So Lee Strobel was curious. He was a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. He had that kind of instinct. So he goes out to interview Templeton. Templeton's at the end of his life, and he's battling uh, uh, Alzheimer's or dementia. And he has lucid moments, but he's, he's definitely getting ready to die. So they talk about what turned Templeton, and he's lucid, and he talks about when he changed and his books. And finally, to make a long story short, Lee Strobel looks at Templeton and says to him, but what about Jesus? What about Jesus? And Templeton says, I miss him. I miss him. And then, if I recall correctly, the story in the book, 
Within a matter of weeks, Templeton dies. Defection. Imagine what Templeton's life could have been had he went to the right instead of the left. Imagine two evangelists like a Billy Graham simultaneously in the world preaching the good news of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the truth is that defections happen all the time. The idea of the quickness of their defection has been pointed out is related to Exodus 32. Would you turn there? This is the second book of your Bible, Exodus chapter 32. This is the story of God delivering the Israelites from Egyptian bondage with the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, all those incredible miracles. They make a covenant with God, Exodus 32, in blood. Moses begins to introduce them to the law. And finally, he goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the law from God. That's the setting, Exodus 32, verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed, he's up on the mountain, to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron. Aaron was Moses' brother and the high priest of Israel. And they said to him, Exodus 32:1, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, No, we shouldn't do this. Stop, I'm the high priest of Israel. I have religious problems with what you're suggesting. None of that. He said, well, tear off the gold rings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people, three, tore off the gold rings, which were in their ears. They brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. It's the famous golden calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Everybody write in your Bible, oy vey, what are they doing? Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, the golden calf. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. See the word Lord there? That's Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. So this is the amalgamation Hey, we can worship the golden calf and we'll have the feast to the God of the Bible too. That's what people try to do all the time. Can't we have a smorgasbord? You know, a little of this, a little Buddhism, a little Christianity. Isn't it all okay? Well, check it out. So he, he says, we're going to have this feast tomorrow. The next day they rose early. They offered burnt offerings, six, bought, uh, brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat, to drink, and rose up to play. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Go down at once for your people whom you brought from the land of Egypt. Don't you love that? <laughs> have corrupted themselves. They have, key word for our study this morning, quickly turned aside from the way. Now many of you see that phrase and you know that the way was an early description of Christians. They were called followers of the way because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the way here in Hebrew thought was from the way of worship of the Jews, the way of life. They've quick, uh, turned quickly aside from the way. Here, God's saying it from my way, which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf, middle of eight, have worshiped it, have sacrificed to it, and said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, if you're God, and if I could just park for a moment, as you could turn back to Galatians and, and say the Bible sometimes paints these pictures of God having feelings, emotion, how would you feel? You just rescued these people from Egyptian bondage with 10 mighty plagues or miracles. You open the Red Sea, drown the Egyptian army. You're about to give them your law, and they've already broken the first and second commandments. You shall have, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You have, you have no other gods before me. Don't make an idol. There they are, dancing around, partying it up, proclaiming that this is their God. If you move from grace, you move from God. Because God is the God of grace. The gospel is about a person, Jesus. Not just a message. It's about a man, the God-man. 
You cannot remove Jesus from the gospel. He's the message. So if you move away from the gospel, you have moved away from Jesus. You've moved away from the God of all grace and the gospel of grace. See, grace is what called us in the beginning, amen? We were sitting in a church, maybe in an a, a evangelistic meeting, and we heard the call. Isaiah 66.4 says, Because I called, but no one answered. I spoke, but they did not listen. They did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. If you desert grace, you go back into bondage. And this is what happens. Later on, when the people of Israel, Numbers 14, if you're a note taker, write down verses 1 through 4 of Numbers 14. They want to stone Moses, and they start saying, let's appoint a leader to take us back to Egypt. We're going back. You know why? Because we're sick of the diet that we've been eating. Banana pancakes, manicotti. There's only so many things you can do with this stuff, right? We missed the steak and the onions. Yes, we took a bite and we were being whipped in between. <laughs> but, but the food was wonderful. Steak and leeks and onions, I miss it, right? You ever uh, traveled abroad and uh, maybe they don't have the typical restaurants we have and the first thing you get back is Miguel's and then In-N-Out. It's somewhere in that order, right? <laughs> Thank you, Lord. You're kissing the floor of In-N-Out. People think you're crazy. That's, that's sort of what <laughs> the people of uh, Israel did. They were sick of the diet. They had forgotten that they were slaves. And do you know the enemy does this to us? I would submit to you that there may be somebody sitting here right now who's on the verge of apostasy, defecting. Because being a Christian is hard. It's not easy. And if that's you, and you've been attracted to Egypt, which is a type of the world, and you've been maybe thinking about a caravan to head back there, I got news for you. You might get your steak and onions, but you're going to get the whip and the bondage again too because the enemy will remind us of the fun times we had, and sin can be fun for a season. We're, we're with our friends and all that stuff. But we rarely have the memories of the next day, right? In front of the so-called porcelain God with a small g. The regret, the emptiness, the guilt. See, we get a partial picture. It's, it was fun. and it's a, Yeah, it was Egypt. You were in bondage. And this is what Paul is saying. God rescued you. Why would you ever go back? In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul uses the wilderness wanderings of Israel to warn the Corinthian believers. Take heed, lest we fall. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness. We've been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. We have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. Jeremiah says to Israel, Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed uh, their glory for that which is not profit. Be appalled, O heavens. This is Jeremiah 2, 11 through 13. At this, and shudder, be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, Jeremiah 2, 13, the fountain of living waters, to hew out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Why would you exchange the living water for broken cisterns? Why would you exchange the living God for a dead idol? Why? Well, because we get lied to sometimes. But a different gospel is a different God. And that God is impotent to save you. You guys read through the Old Testament, and you see how many times did God say, okay, well, go call upon your idol now and see what he does for you. The idol that you made with your hands, the idol that you created, the idol that has eyes but can't see, ears but can't hear, feet but can't walk. See if they'll save you. Cry out to them for a while. You see, this is the silliness of going anywhere else, going to a different gospel. Verse 7, which is really not another. 
It's no gospel at all. If you have the uh, NIV, it's no gospel at all. The ESV says not that there's another one, but there are some who are disturbing you, and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. The church was in confusion and chaos. Some years ago, I had a pastor friend of mine, and he told me that his church was in a season of division, serious division, and it all came from one man. One man was going into the small group Bible studies. He had a hobby horse doctrine that he couldn't get off of, and he started to preach it to the small group Bible studies, make his case, and he was questioning the pastor's theology, and the church ended up divided. Flip over to Galatians 5 for a second. Even though the language uh, tells us that there's a group of people that are doing this, preaching a different gospel, they have a leader. Galatians 5.10 says, I have confidence in you, 5.10, that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. Now, the language in chapter 1, if you flip back there, is that there's a group of people that are causing the confusion, but they have a ringleader, and that's typically what happens. They had one guy stirring the pot, and he was agitating the people, and the idea of uh, disturbing is a Greek word, terrasso, and it means to cause inner turmoil or confusion. It's a word in the Gospel of John where Jesus was in turmoil as he was facing the cross. He was deeply troubled, and the disciples were troubled. It means to stir, to agitate, to cause heartache or heaviness or confusion. And this is what was happening. This troubler was stirring it up, stirring the pot. He was causing soul distress in people. One writer says, the trouble uh, with a lot of us comes from pressure and often troublesome times in our lives. Think about, for example, a person who comes out of a cult or a world religion and they become a Christian and now their family begins to say, if you're going to follow that, and some of you may be in this spot right now, uh, we're going to disown you or you're going to have nothing to do with the family anymore. You see, when, when this happens, it's not always about theological things, you guys. When someone is in a system, it's about family. It's about emotional distress and pressure. It's about, hey, this is all my family's known and our culture and everything. And now to become a Christian is a huge move. And sometimes people go back to old traditions and systems because they can't take it. They can't take the alienation. They can't take the threats. And so they go back to their old ways or old habits. These leaders were saying something like this. Well, if you believe that simple gospel of grace, you're not really saved. You see, it appeals to us to do something. They might say something like this. Well, it's, it's Jesus, but you got to do these 10 other things or these 20 other things, and then you could be saved, which appeals to me as a human because now it's my self-effort. If I could check the boxes, then I can know. And, but, you know, when we end up in heaven, there ain't going to be no boasting about what I did, what you did. We'll be rewarded for it. But the only thing we're going to boast in is in the cross of Jesus. Amen? You see, there's going to be no boasting about how many doors I knocked on or how many people I led to Christ. That's why I'm here. No, no, no. You're going to be in because of the grace of God. Wilson points out that there's a twin source of defection or apostasy in every professing Christian's life. He says it's Soul trouble and twisted truth. Soul trouble makes us vulnerable to twisted truth. I'm quoting. We can experience soul trouble in personal crisis, hardships, tragedy, and loss. He tells the story of a young man who returns home from college on Christmas break, only to be told by his Christian parents, raised in a Christian home, that they're getting a divorce. He's crushed. He returns to college and takes a world religion class which under normal other circumstances would have been a useful intellectual exercise, but now that class is set to deliver a body blow to his Christian faith. He ends up getting into yoga with his girlfriend, transcendental meditation with his roommate. He no longer considers himself a Christian. What happened, asks Wilson. Well, apostasy often comes in times of crisis, but it also can be a slow drift 
moving us, as he says, from the seashore of faith to the raft of doubt, driven by the winds of disappointment and carried by the currents of false teaching. Close quote. Sometimes you ask a person, what happened? Why did you stop going to church? Why did you turn over here? And when you unveil the reason, it's a personal hurt. It's a disappointment with another professing Christian. My mom and dad are getting a divorce and they raised me in a Christian home and they gave me this faith and now what are they doing? And we get hurt and we get wounded. And the natural response for many is, well then, maybe Christianity's not true or maybe I'm not gonna bother with it anymore. I was at a golf course and I began to witness to a girl that was behind the counter and I was sharing the gospel with her and she, uh, she said, I will never step foot in a Christian church again. And I said, why? She said, because I grew up in a church. And they said, if you wear that dress, you're going to hell. If you wear makeup, you're going to hell. You go to a movie, you're going to hell. You dance, you're going to hell. You smoke cigarettes, you're going to hell. She said, I will never step inside a church again. Now, I tried my best to preach grace to her and have her understand the simple gospel. But I'll tell you, there are many people in our world due to false teaching and crises or a combination of both that inoculate people to the gospel. They got a deflector shield so thick around them because of past hurts and wounds and confusion of false teaching, which abounds in our world. And so they distort the gospel. They add to it. Think about if you had a painted masterpiece that became corrupted. The gospel is a masterpiece. You have a computer file that becomes corrupted. You have... Uh, People who mess with things and change the purity of something, that's what was happening, and the, the original gets lost, corrupted. That's what was happening. The American gospel, it's Jesus plus wealth, prosperity, health, and wealth. It's this formula. It's these 10 things, these 15 things, this dress. got to be baptized in our baptismal. you got to have this diet. Oh, you eat that? Oh, you're in trouble. No, 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 no. We are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. Here's how it's been put. Gospel math. The gospel plus anything equals nothing. Or to put it another way, gospel equations are this. Jesus plus anything else equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Amen? Jesus plus nothing he saves you. What could you add to what he did? Now, some people at this point say, well, then, could you just live however you want to? You get your insurance policy, put it in your back pocket. I'm not going to hell anymore. Saved by grace, saved by grace, saved by grace. Sing the little song. And then you go out and live like hell the whole week. Is that what your Christian life should be about? No. See, the greatest motivator for living a godly life is grace. Amen. The greatest motivator for me to honor the Lord is love, not law. Think about it. What motivates you the most in your life to do the right stuff? Is it law or love? It's, it's I love because he first loved me. He gave himself up for me. What, what would I hold back from a God like that? I love my bride. I want to honor her. It's love, the love I have for her that motivates that faithfulness. Not some law, not some document I signed 30 years ago. It's love. Love is expressed, of course, in wanting to do the right thing. And so Paul says, look, even though or if we, that's Paul and his companions introduced to us in the first part of the letter, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you. If that happened, let him be accursed. That word accursed is anathema. It literally means let that person be devoted to divine destruction. Let them be under the wrath of God. You want to say serious? Oh, yeah. Paul says if we came back into town and preached a different gospel, if an angel came down and preach a different gospel, that person is under the anathema of God. They're under the curse of God. Do you know in the early uh, stories of Mormonism, Joseph Smith 
said he had an angel appear to him, the angel Moroni, or if you're Italian, Moroni, okay? And this angel, by the quaking bedside of Joseph Smith, the first prophet of Mormonism, told Joseph where to dig in the Hill Cumorah in Upper State, New York, to find golden plates where he would translate the Book of Mormon. Now, that story is interesting, isn't it? Because it was allegedly an angel bringing a message that is essentially contrary to the gospel, although the Book of Mormon is less problematic than some of their other writings. Now, it's not the angelic visit that automatically makes it wrong, right? In Matthew 1 and Luke 1, we have narrative accounts of angels, the angel Gabriel, namely, appearing to Mary and Joseph to tell them about the coming of the Messiah. An angel coming doesn't mean it's automatically wrong. But if the message is different from the gospel we know, then that tells us it's a false gospel. Now, in the last days in Revelation 13, 13, and 14, I think it's the false prophet who have the ability to call fire down from heaven. Now, would that impress you? If someone came to you and said, hey, I want you to start following me now and my sidekick, the Antichrist, and just in case if you're wondering if we're legit, you might say to yourself, Pastor Michael never called fire down from heaven. Oh, I've been asking for it. <laughs> I'm kidding. You're just kidding. Would a sign or a wonder be verification? Not if the gospel's false. Now, Jesus did signs and wonders, but his message, and of course, he was the gospel, but there's such a thing as false signs and wonders. At the beginning of Islam, Muhammad thought a demon was terrorizing him and then his wife convinced him that it was actually a good angel. So we have some precedent for this kind of thing. Interestingly enough, in a place called Medjugorje, uh, Yugoslavia, some apparitions began to appear, as the story goes, to some teenage kids. They went out into the woods to smoke cigarettes. And this Marian apparition, they called her the Madonna or the Virgin Mary, floating three feet above the ground began to bring messages to these so-called uh, people who are getting these apparitions. And people from the Catholic Church and the Evangelical Church went and interviewed the visionaries, as they call them. What did you see? What did the apparitions say? Perhaps they, they're saying thousands of messages came over the years. Well, the Madonna in a gray outfit floating three feet above the ground started to say that all religions lead to the same place and uh, all you got to do is really be a good person. And So even if we were convinced that the visionaries actually saw something, we'd be a little concerned, would we not? Because now we're getting pluralistic messages about, oh, it's just about your sincerity. It's all religions teach the same basic principles. Do they? Let me ask you. If you have an Eastern religion that teaches that you live over and over and over again in reincarnation and that you finally get off the wheel of reincarnation when you're good enough and you have enough good karma and then you merge back into this non-personality great one and then the Christian faith tells you that you live once, it's appointed to a man to die once and after this comes the judgment, that Jesus is the only way, that he's made a way for you but you've got to trust in him. You have two uh, differing truth claims, correct? Do those two truth claim, claims contradict each other? Yes, they do. One says you live over and over and over again and you get there where you, where you need to be based upon performance and good karma. And the other one says you got to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, both true, truth claims could be false, but they both can't be true because they contradict one another. To put it simply, two plus two is four. Someone over here says, I really believe two plus two equals five. I feel it. Well, that's compelling. But two plus two is four. I don't care how you feel. I had someone come up to me after first service and say, do you know some people are saying if you say two plus two equals four, that 
that you're being mean to people and you're bordering on racism? Because I said that two plus two is four and not five. That's where our world is right now. Have you noticed? We going cuckoo. There's some crazy stuff out there. How dare you say two plus two could only be four? And then they want to go over and pet a puppy in the corner for a while. I mean, this is where we are, folks. I'm sorry, but it's craziness. We have some serious issues with real racism. Don't get me wrong. But we have some crazy stuff going on, too, where if you tell someone they could potentially be wrong, you are an evil person. This is, this is where our world is. Because I think I could feel some of you saying, man, Paul sounds a little harsh. He's calling curses down on people? Chill. Take a chill pill, Paul. Unless people's souls are actually on the line. Unless what Paul is saying is divine truth and people are being duped all over the planet into thinking they're okay with God when they're not. Well, that's what is before us. Jesus says, For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles, Matthew 24, 24, to deceive even the elect if that were possible. See, I've told you in advance. The devil comes as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11, masquerades as an angel of light seeking to confuse and even deceive. He did it to our first parents. Genesis 3, did God really say? Oh, no, no, no. God knows in the day that you eat that fruit that looks so good, you'll become his gods, knowing good and evil. Same lie, same source, and as Dr. Martin put it, same destiny. See, this is just repackaged stuff. And so as we wind down, Paul pronounces a double warning or a double curse. He says, as we've said before, so I say again now, if any man, he went from us to an angel to anyone, verse 9, is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed under the divine curse, the anathema, the destruction of Almighty God. What should we do? If someone goes astray, we should pursue him. James 5 says, my brethren... If anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. James 5, 19 and 20. The church has been entrusted with the everlasting saving gospel to protect it from being diluted, to preach it straight. But do you know why a lot of what's happening is happening today? Because of verse 10. Would you read it? For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Now, don't raise your hand, but I would imagine that all of you have some people-pleasing tendencies. We all can be that way, right? And imagine if you're a pastor and you're being interviewed by Larry King and the red light goes on and you're sitting there at a desk and Larry King begins to ask you some questions about Alternative lifestyles, what you believe about marriage, what you believe about are people who don't trust in Christ going to end up in hell? You know, they frame the questions very well, don't they? And there you are. You're, you're the one on national TV now. You're the one with the hot lights on you. You're going to go home later and do a barbecue in your backyard, but your neighbor saw you on TV. Hey, were you, uh, you were the one on TV saying that stuff about blah, 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 blah. yeah, yeah. See, now you got to make some decisions, right? Do I really believe what I say I believe? And we've watched some pastors there ask the question under the hot lights, and they, they do something like this. Well, let me entertain you. And they, and they dance all around the subject. Others, instead of taking a full swing, went like this. They, they turned to bunt. And others just went, Mary had a little <laughs> It's hard, isn't it? We laugh at it, but you know, when you have somebody looking at you saying, how dare you say Jesus is the only way? How all of a sudden, you're at work, 
Everybody's rallied around the Keurig, the coffee maker. <laughs> and you hear discussion, yeah, all religions, basically. I'm reading this book on how all religions lead to God, and it's just about being sincere. And if you're sincere, you're fine. And there you are. You just heard the message from Galatians 1 in church. Should I? <laughs> uh, could, could, could I bring something up to you guys? What, Holy Joe? Or you're at an Easter dinner with your family, right? And politics and religion come up and people are, oh, all religions basically teach the same lessons. Everybody is just about being sincere. And there you are. And, and you say, oh, well, wait a minute. Jesus claimed to be, oh, hey, holy Joe, it's Easter. We're not going to talk about that kind of stuff. Jesus being brought up at Easter time. See, this is the pressure we feel, isn't it? And if we were going to be honest, there's been times when we've been quiet when we should have spoken up. There's been times when the fear of man and the approval of man shut my mouth. Because we all like to be liked. And we don't want to rock the boat unnecessarily. And please hear me, Paul is not saying he doesn't believe in serving people. Paul is not saying he doesn't believe in biblical compromise. We should be compromising and deferring to people all over the place. In marriage, uh, we should put others before us. Philippians 2, Paul says, have this mind in you, this attitude which is in Christ Jesus. Put others as more important than yourself. But when it comes to the essential Christian teachings of the faith that determine one's salvation, you can't compromise. You could let others go before you. You could defer. Someone says nasty words to you. You hold back and you, and you ask the Lord to help you. But if someone says, oh, there's other ways to be saved, you can't compromise on the essential Christian gospel. Why? Because if you confirm someone in their lostness, who do you think is going to answer for that? See, my job is to preach the biblical gospel and to equip God's people. Your job is to be equipped enough to know when a false gospel comes across your horizon. Amen? And then to pray for God, to God for wisdom on how do you navigate this? How do you preach it with compassion and yet not compromise? These are difficult things. You know, Jesus said to the religious leaders, you love the approval of men more than the approval of God. You're a bunch of people pleasers. We cannot downplay the power of this. But Paul says, if I was going to please men, I wouldn't be a bondservant of Christ. Would you pray with me, Father? We know that a bondservant in Hebrew is eved. In Greek, it's doulos. It's one who's made a decision that his master's will is the most important thing. And he will, she will do those things that please their Lord no matter what. And that's a decision that each of us, I think, who are Christians have made, but we are prone to wander and prone to compromise. And Lord, it can be hard out there. It can be hard in our own hearts. And I'm going to ask you right now that you would give us strength and courage never to hold back the truth that could save somebody, but to deliver it never forgetting where we once were, how we were lost, how we were ignorant, so that we don't start calling curses down on people or being obnoxious, but we preach the truth in love, and then we leave the rest to you. I don't think it's loving, Lord, to hold back saving truth, but I feel the pressure personally at times because it's easier to be quiet. Would you help me? Would you help all of us to be a little bit more bold, yet to be compassionate, to know that it's compassion that drives us to preach the good news of the hope of the gospel. It means everything to us. So forgive us for the times that we've held back for people-pleasing reasons, Lord. Oh, how we need wisdom to navigate the times in which we live where to make exclusive claims is, uh, will automatically paint you in a way that uh, is not popular. But would you help us to say, Lord, I'm your bondservant. I want to do those things that please my master. And so help us to, to be bold, 
but let love drive us, Lord. We thank you so much. If you're here and you've not met Jesus, would you keep your head and heart bowed? If you've not settled it, if you've not decided to follow Jesus and ask him to be your Savior and your Lord, you can do that right now because remember, it's a gift. There's nothing you can add to it, but you've got to receive it for yourself, and it's something this simple yet so profound. Jesus, pray it if it's you. Would you save me? Would you be my Lord, my Savior, my God, and my King? Thank you that you died on that terrible cross for me. Thank you for coming into this broken world. Thank you for suffering in my place, bearing my shame, taking the wrath I deserved. Thank you for putting your love on display at that cross. I put my faith and trust in you and you alone for my salvation. I turn away from the idols in my life and I turn to you, the true and living God. You may be at a point where you need to recommit your life and maybe in a time of crisis or heartache, you defected. You walked away. But you want to come home. You know, the, the Bible paints God as the father of the prodigal just waiting for him to come home, to love him, to celebrate. And if that's you, that's, that's the father's heart. He just wants you to come home. And so my prayer for you is that you just articulate a simple prayer of coming home today. And Father, for this precious church fellowship that is preaching the gospel on the highways and byways, in the schools, on the streets, in the malls, on the radio, on the mission field, in Bible studies, in homes, in neighborhoods, may you help us to be ambassadors of good news, of great joy, which is for all people that a Savior has come. And his name is Jesus. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?